You can turn to 1 Corinthians 7 if you haven't already. And uh, we're going to be continuing in this passage in this series here, uh, Church at a Crossroads. And uh, we're going to be looking at a new chapter, but a similar topic as Paul continues on. Let me just pray. Uh, Father, we bless you. We thank you for your word. It's not like we um, are just making stuff up out of the dark. You have actually spoken. We bless you. We thank you for that, God. We thank you that because the king has spoken, then we can actually learn what is true. And so, Father, would you prepare our hearts now to hear your word as we come to your word, Lord, that it would change the way we think and live. God, that we may honor you in our lives, we pray in your name. Amen. 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 I have a few books here with me today I'll uh, be referring to. But have you ever been in a situation where you're tempted to think, you know, if I just tweak my circumstance, if I just kind of change my status, things would go a lot better. I would be able to honor God more. I would be able to please him more. I'd be a better Christian. You know, if I just had that job, that other job that I've been looking at, that would be way better because my current job is just, you know, it's a toxic environment. I feel like I'm getting held back. I'm just not growing as a Christian. It's hard. But if I had that job, it would be just way better. It would be way better. Or if you're single, you're thinking, you know, if I was just married, oh, if I was just married, then I'd have a spouse to help me grow. They'd be there and encouraging me and helping me grow spiritually. I'd be able to honor God way more if I were married. Or maybe you're married and you're thinking, you know, I feel like I'd be able to honor the Lord a lot more if I wasn't, or at least not married to this person. I'd be able to be much further along spiritually if this person wasn't holding me back. I'd be able to honor God way more. And sometimes we can be caught feeling this temptation that, you know, things would be a lot better if I just switched positions. If I could tweak my situation, I could honor God better. I could be a better Christian. And we are called to honor God with our whole lives. Uh, we talked about that. We've been talking about that really for the last couple of weeks. And Paul's going to continue in that theme for us here today on how we honor our lives, particularly when talking about the topic of marriage and all the things that kind of surround it. Paul touches on mostly marriage, but he'll talk a little bit about singleness. He'll talk a little bit about uh, widowhood. He'll talk about divorce and remarriage. We're going to try to touch on a few of these things, but it will be impossible for us to cover all that needs to be said about these, these topics today. And so that's why I want to encourage you and invite you to be able to participate in some of those events that Deborah had mentioned earlier that are coming up uh, that are here really as an extension to go in greater depth to provide more help and support for you. So for instance, Grief Share starts this afternoon. This is a, a great program that helps those who are grieving the loss of a loved one. And so we're going to be talking about widowhood here today. And so maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe that would be a great course for you to help you through bereavement and healing through grief. 
Or we're also hoping to offer an understanding marriage course or class. It's actually a one-day class on February 5th. And that's where we're going to walk through what does it mean to be married and all the different roles and responsibilities in marriage. And so that's designed for whether you're single or engaged or you are married. It's there as further encouragement and clarity in marriage. We also hope to, in the coming months, provide a new program. It's called Divorce Care. This is an opportunity for those who have gone through divorce to, again, receive more help, more encouragement in making sense of what they have gone through in divorce. And then in a couple of weeks, Pastor Ted's going to go in-depth in singleness because Paul addresses that more in depth in just uh, a little bit at the end of the chapter here. And so Pastor Ted, Lord willing, is going to go uh, into greater depth there at that time just in a couple of weeks. But today we're going to zero in on mostly marriage and how do we honor God in our marriages. And this touches on all of our lives, you know, regardless of where we're at, whether we're single or married whether we're divorced or remarried or widowed, this topic affects us all. But before we dive in here, I just want to mention a couple of things. One is that as we approach God's word, that we would approach it as that. This is God's word. He is the king, and we are his people. And so as we come to his word, let us have hearts that are ready to receive what he has said, it is the most wise and loving words on this topic. Also, we also want to realize that we are all in need of God's grace, no matter what situation we are in. I know I am very, very tempted at times to think that because I'm in my situation, I'm living out my story, my situation, I know it best, and so I can begin to think, wow, my, my situation is the hardest. No one has it as hard as me until I begin to come alongside others in different situations, and I'm like, oh, wow, and my heart is stirred with compassion. And I grow in my understanding as to, wow, we all need God's grace. Everyone's situation has joys and hardships. And I want to encourage us as a church family in order to foster growing compassion for one another that we would learn one another's stories, get to know someone, particularly in a different marital status than you, since we're talking about that today, in order to grow in awareness and compassion as to what they have gone through or are going through. And that will help guard our own hearts from a, a myoptic view that oh, my situation's the hardest. No one understands it, no one gets it. It's surprising how many people have walked parallel paths to us, and we need to get to know that. We are all in need of God's grace. Some of us are single, and we are really struggling wanting to be married. Some of us are widowed, and it is a battle every day for hope. Some of us are married and we wish we weren't. Some of us are married and we wish that, well, we're not married now and we wish we still were. Uh, some of us were the reason why there was a divorce and that I'm not married anymore and we have regret. Some of us have remarried 
and are wondering if that really was the right idea. Some of us have not remarried, but are still hoping to reconcile with our former spouse. There are so many specific situations that we experience, and we are all in need of God's grace. And this is the last thing I just want to say before we jump into this passage. This is why God has put us in a family. We are not designed to navigate these waters alone. We need one another. We need to help one another, walk with one another, pray with one another. And so I want to encourage you, after this talk, continue the conversation that you would reach out maybe to one of us as elders or your small group leader, one of the staff, the friend you came with, a brother and sister in Christ in the church. Reach out to them. Share what you're going through. Get the help that you need. Okay. With that in mind, let's go into uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, Paul here is answering some specific questions that the Corinthian church had asked him. They had written a letter. They had asked him some questions. Can you give us some insight here? And so he's responding to those questions. Now, as we've seen in earlier chapters, chapter 5, chapter 6, there were some in the church at Corinth that had an extreme view of sex. They thought that the gospel actually freed them to do whatever they wanted to do with their bodies sexually. They could go to brothels, they could be with prostitutes, it didn't matter, they could still honor God and do all of that. What we're gonna see in this chapter is that there's a whole other section of the church, a whole other group that had the extreme opposite side. They swung the pendulum to the other extreme and they believed that it was the only way that you could honor God was actually to abstain from all sexual intimacy, even within marriage. They went as far as to say that, you know, if you are married to an unbeliever, you probably should stop that. You probably should break that up just so you can honor the Lord and not be defiled by all these things of the world. And so Paul now is gonna shift gears and address this group today. And he's going to address and give some clarity on a whole bunch of things. And he sets out first to address the extreme and erroneous view by actually showing first that it is a way that we can honor the Lord is actually by staying intimate in our marriages. We are to stay intimate in marriage. Verse 1, Paul quotes, you'll see there's, there's these uh, quotation marks there in verse 1. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He's quoting something that this, this group over here in the Corinthian church is advocating, promoting. And he's saying right away in verse 2, no, that is not correct. He says, but in fact, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That word have, to have your own wife or to have your own husband is a euphemism for sexual relations. It's the same phrase that Paul used in chapter five, verse one, when someone had his stepmother and that was not right. But in this situation, it is good and blessed for a husband to have his wife and a wife to have her husband. And so Paul here says it is actually good, it's blessed of the Lord. And he gives a few reasons for that. One, it fulfills a mutual promise. It's God-honoring and good for husbands and wives to be physically intimate, to be sexually intimate, because it fulfills a mutual promise. 
this promise that was made on their wedding day to serve one another sexually in marriage. You'll notice in verse three, there's this phrase, conjugal rights. That's how it's translated in English. It literally means to give what is owed. That is when a husband and wife come together and marry, they covenant with one another to have and to hold from this day forward. That is loyal fidelity and even sexual language to hold fast to one another. This is the idea of what's being communicated. And they make that promise on that day. And so it's a promise. And it's right for a spouse to expect the other spouse to fulfill that promise. It would be wrong for a spouse to permanently just say, no, I'm cutting off all sexual relations in this marriage. Saying, well, because God told me, or I don't want to defile myself, or anything like that. No, that isn't, that's actually not an option. God says it's actually good, it's blessed in the marriage, and you promised. It's a mutual promise you made in your marital covenant. I just wanna give a clarifying comment here. There is a lie in our world today that says that sex is a need. A sex is a need. The world views sex like oxygen. You need it to live. And as a result, you are entitled to get it wherever and however and with whoever you want because you need it. You're entitled to it. You, it's like oxygen. And so that's why even today, secular psychologists, some, will give as homework to those who are struggling in their marriage and not being satisfied sexually. They'll actually give them as homework pornography or encourage them to start an extramarital affair because you need sex and you're not getting it here and so you need it and so you go get it. That's your homework. That's the concept that our world operates. And this idea that sex is a need has trickled into the church. I've heard it taught at conferences, marriage conferences before. It is a lie from hell. If you operate with that concept, it will always lead you to increasing pride and selfishness. What God's word actually says is that it is not a need, it is a sexual desire that God has given that is to be guided and directed by God's word and spirit for the honor and glory of God. He's given clear pathways and contexts for that desire to be fulfilled and satisfied. It is a desire, it is not a need. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ. He's always the best example to go to. He lived his entire life as a virgin. He didn't die because of the absence of sex. Paul lived his life as a single man. He didn't die because of the lack of sex. No, it's not a need. And so practically then, that has huge implications no matter where you're at in your life, but I wanna specifically talk about what Paul's saying here about practically in a marriage then, how does, does a husband and wife mutually fulfill that promise, that marital promise for sexual intimacy and not make it a need or a demand? Well, just very practically, the new covenant law of love governs it. It directs it. And so it would be good, for example, for a spouse to be able to communicate a desire for sexual intimacy with their spouse, while at the same time not demanding it, being aware that there could be other factors that would make it hard to be able to do that. Maybe the other spouse is sick, or 
um, is grieving, there's bereavement going on, or there's some other extenuating circumstance, and so it's right to communicate, but not demand. And the other spouse wants to be in a position to always sacrificially serve the other spouse, while at the same time being able to freely communicate their desire not to. And so what you have here is the ability for a husband and wife to speak freely and openly and honestly with one another, but, in, but ultimately to love and to serve sacrificially one another. It's, a, it's beautiful and so wise how God brings this together under the covenant of love in Christ. So, so it's good. It's good and God-honoring for a husband and wife to be regularly intimate. And he gives another reason why, and that's because of the fact that it honors their shared authority. This is an astounding argument that Paul makes here, that there's actually this shared authority that a husband and wife have over one another's bodies. Verse four, Paul is highlighting this biblical truth that goes all the way back to Genesis two, verse 24, that very first wedding, that very first marriage with Adam and Eve, God says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They'll be glued together and they shall become one flesh. The two bodies of a husband and wife mysteriously become one body, one flesh through the act of sex, giving them mutual ownership and authority over one another's bodies because indeed there are actually one body. Amazing. So together then, they are to steward one another's bodies to love and serve one another in ways that honor and glorify God. This uh, mutual belonging, this oneness, is seen in so many uh, spots throughout Scripture. But Song of Solomon is, uh, lays it out so clearly here in verse, chapter 6, verse 3. It says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Or in chapter 2, 16, it says, my beloved is mine, and I am his. This this reciprocal oneness, this mutual belonging that's seen all throughout Scripture. It's even talked about and most ultimately culminating in our relationship with Christ, as Pastor Ted talked about a couple of weeks ago, that we already now are one spirit with Christ. But when he comes again in the clouds, we see him, we will be made like him, we will receive a resurrected body like his, we will go to him in the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we will have not only one spirit with Christ, but be one flesh with him, having the same resurrected body as he does. All this is pointing to the Lord, but we get glimpses, powerful pictures here among us now on this side of glory. And this is all a part of God's design. It would be, it, that's why it's good and right for a husband and a wife to come together intimately because if they permanently say, no, we're giving that all up, we're not doing that, what it does is actually speaks contrary to the very nature of their marriage, their oneness, their one flesh union. The last reason that Paul gives is back in verse two, he says that it helps avoid sexual immorality when a husband and wife come together regularly. Paul warns in verse two, you probably saw that, that if a spouse, one of the spouses or both spouses permanently say, do you know what, we're gonna abstain uh, indefinitely it 
puts temptation into the marriage so that one or more of the spouses will be tempted to find sexual fulfillment outside of the marriage. And this jeopardizes the protection of the marital covenant and exposes them as a greater target. Now, in verse 5 and verse 6, Paul does say that if a couple mutually agrees for a temporary season to spend time praying and seeking the Lord, that's good. They can fast from sexual intimacy. That's fine. But Paul says, but make sure you mutually, you mutually agree on that, and that it's just for a short amount of time because you don't want to be tempted by Satan towards sexual immorality. Paul wants to guard marriages because it is such a powerful picture of what it's meant to point to, and that is to Jesus and the church. We want our lives and our marriages to reflect him well. And so he says, do everything you can to make sure that you're not uh, exasperating temptation that's unnecessary in your marriage. So these are three reasons why it's good and wise and God-honoring for couples to come together regularly in intimacy and why it is wrong to choose to permanently abstain. Did you know the Bible actually talked about this? <laughs> it's amazing how there is not a topic under the sun that the Scripture does not address. And here's one clear example. Now, before we move on, I just want to highlight the fact that you notice, and you're going to see this all throughout this passage as we go through it, Paul is constantly highlighting both sides, the husband's point of view and then the wife's point of view. He could just, you know, for efficiency's sake, make it, you know, a little shorter. But he's so bent and wanting to make so explicit the fact that what is true for the husband is true for the wife. What is true for the wife is true for the husband. Do you see how Paul, in very countercultural ways, is trying to elevate the equality of a husband and wife in marriage. It's amazing. He repeats himself and gives both sides of the story so often here, and that's very, very helpful because, again, in that Greco-Roman culture, in that surrounding society in which these Corinthians were coming out of, that was not the case. It was highly misogynistic. And we can even... As Paul found it creeping into the church there, he wanted to be so clear to address it, it's good for us to also be aware of that in our own day. There can be pockets of misogyny that comes in, that this idea that men are superior to women that is completely contrary to the scripture. And, of course, the opposite, the other idea is also not true, that women are superior to men. That's extreme feminism. That is also unbiblical. You see Paul in this beautiful way bring and elevate the equality of men and women, of husbands and wives in marriage. Again, there's many other passages that speak to marriage, that highlight the beautiful complementary roles that exist in marriage where a husband is to lovingly lead and a wife is to lovingly submit. And there's so much more that can be said on that. Please come to the Understanding Marriage class on February 5th. But let's not miss the fact that Paul is going to great lengths to elevate the equality of a husband and a wife in marriage. Notice also how Paul repeatedly reinforces a biblical definition and description 
and the very design of marriage between one man and one woman for life. He says very clearly that each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. This rules out polygamy. This is singular, one man, one woman. It also rules out same-sex marriage. You don't have two people of the same gender and same sex being married. You have a woman and a man. This is God's good design. All other representations are deviations and sin. And God calls us back to the design, back to his blueprint. Remember, he is the king. He is the creator. We are made in his image. He knows what's best for us. He knows how it all works. He made it. This is the blueprint. He lovingly calls us back to it through the gospel. Now, beginning with marriage, Paul now shifts briefly over to singleness and how the gospel, again, strikes this amazing balance in elevating the goodness of marriage, but then also elevating the goodness of singleness. And in fact, in some situations, Paul actually uh, elevates singleness above marriage. And then he elevates sometimes marriage above singleness. It really depends on the situation and the gift. But there's a couple of things I just want us to highlight here. Uh, I know Pastor Ted will be talking about this in a couple of weeks. But Paul says that we can also honor the Lord by staying single. That is massive. That has massive cultural implications. We all are born somewhere. We all were born and raised in a particular culture. Every culture has a view of singleness. Listen to what God's word says, that we can honor the Lord by staying single. That category doesn't exist in a lot of places and cultures. But here it does in the family of God. First, in verse 8, Paul says that it is good to remain single. To the unmarried and the widows, those are all different forms and categories of singleness. I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Paul was single. And so, Paul celebrates singleness. He sees it as a good thing with many, many benefits, and he'll get to those benefits later in the chapter. But here he emphasizes an overall principle that he will repeat again and again and again, that you can honor God right where you are. You don't have to change your status. You don't have to become someone else or something else. You can be single and honor the Lord fully. As a single person, you're not a half human. You, you, it's not like you're an immature sub-Christian. No, you can be a full person and a mature believer that honors the Lord in your singleness. Paul was single, and he's writing, saying, remain single. It's good. It's good. 1 Corinthians 7.24, a little sneak peek later on in the chapter, says, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Notice that singleness doesn't mean that you're alone. Singleness means that you're not married, but you're with God. And you're with brothers and sisters in Christ, with the family of God. Singleness was never 
never designed to be isolated loneliness or aloneness. No, singleness is actually an opportunity in which it complements other statuses that are in the family of God, in which you are in community, you are with God, and you are with his people. And so know and and pursue community. Now, I also want to say to those who are not single, to be intentional in pursuing those who are single, to open up your homes, practice hospitality, welcome them in, get to know their story. That is a part of the body life of the church. And this is an opportunity for us to be able to honor singleness by not trying to always feel this pressure and bring the topic up like, so when are you getting married or do you need me to hook you up? They may ask for that and that's great. And if they ask, help them. But if they're not asking, don't push it. They are in exactly where God wants them to be. Get to know them, invite them into your home. Paul also says in verse 9, that it's best to be what God has gifted you to be. And this is, he's just building this theme here. If you're single, stay single. Unless you burn with passion, he says. Now that is to be regularly tempted towards sexual immorality. And if so, then you should probably pursue marriage and ask, ask people to help you in that. Then if you are married, you should stay married, even if it's hard. And if in God's providence, God removes your spouse and they pass away, then it's best to stay single, Paul says, as a widow. Unless, of course, you burn with passion and it's more wise in your situation to remarry, but only in the Lord, that is, with a Christian. There are so many things here. And so please come and talk afterwards. But I do want to recommend a few books on this. One is by Sam Albury. Uh, Seven Myths About Singleness. Just a great overview and Christian perspective on singleness. This is good, not just if you're single, but for those who are not single in order to be able to interact well with those who are single. Highly recommend it. For those who are single through uh, the passing of a loved one and spouse, I encourage you to read this book, When Your Family Lost a Loved One. It's by the Guthrie's. And it covers a bunch of different types of bereavement, but one is the loss of your spouse. And this is one of the books that are used in Grief Share as a recommended resource. And so I wanted to recommend that today as well. One more here is by Andreas Kostenberger, Family, Marriage and the Family. Uh, an excellent book. You'll notice all of these are, are thin. I like thin books. This is an excellent resource, not just for marriage and all things touching on marriage, but it also talks about singleness. There's a great chapter on singleness in this book as well. Highly recommend these three resources. Okay, so like an athlete answering reporters after a game, Paul is pivoting here now from question to another question, zipping back to another, filling out some more details. And so he jumps back to the topic of marriage, and he wants to affirm that couples can honor the Lord by staying married. I know that sounds obvious, but it's not. We can honor the Lord by staying married. And he's going to cover... A bunch of different scenarios here. Verse 10 says that it's to the married. He wants to now just address now the the married people in the congregation in Corinth. And these are Christian couples. 
Uh, he's going to talk about the situation where a Christian is married to an unbeliever in just a little bit, but he first just wants to address the couples who are both believers, husband and wife. And in verse 10, it says, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. The words here, to separate and to divorce, both mean, at the end of the day, to divorce. Uh, the word separate means to, to literally leave, spatially, physically leave, which caused divorce. And to uh, divorce, that word means to be loosed, to be released from the marital covenant by divorce. And so uh, both mean divorce. They were used interchangeably with slightly different nuances. And so Paul is saying here, if you're married, stay married. Do not divorce. Well, what if we just got your letter, Paul? It just came in the mail today, and I already got divorced. Now what? What do I do then? Paul clarifies in verse 11 that if you're a believer and you've already been divorced, then you should either stay single or be reconciled and remarried to your former spouse. Remarriage to another person is not allowed in that situation. Why? Well, because the divorce did not occur for biblically permissible reasons. Do you mean to say that there are actually biblically permissible reasons for divorce and remarriage in the Bible? Yes, yes there are, there are a couple. Paul begins by reminding us, you'll see right there in verse 10, he says, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. What he's doing there is he's quoting Jesus. He's saying, you Corinthians, I'm saying this to you, but I'm actually just quoting Jesus. Jesus actually said this first during his earthly ministry. And when did Jesus give that? Well, that was back in Matthew 19. It's in a couple of different spots in each of the Gospels, but I just want to highlight this one in particular. In Matthew 19, you have the Pharisees asking Jesus about this very topic. They came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? There were some at that time believed that you could divorce your wife because she burnt your supper. He answered, have you not read? That's very shaming to say to a Pharisee because they, they prided themselves in reading the Bible. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We see the Pharisees asking Jesus about divorce, and Jesus emphasizes the permanence of marriage. They want to find out from Jesus all the reasons why they can divorce, and Jesus wants to give them all the reasons why they should stay married. Jesus is helping them see that they are asking the wrong question. They are focusing on the wrong point. Of course, the Pharisees don't like what Jesus is saying, and so they press him further. Now they said to him, why then did Moses command one to get a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus said to them, well, it's because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, 
But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, listen to the king, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus here, again, he corrects those Pharisees. He says that Moses never commanded anyone to get divorced. Instead, in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, the passage that the Pharisees are particularly asking Jesus about here, Moses gives regulations to restrain the unbridled, easy divorce and remarriage that was going on and to mitigate the abuses of divorce that were occurring, particularly, particularly against wives. And so Moses is putting these things in place as restrictive, restraining measures to curb the evil that was going on. So instead of divorce being commanded, Jesus actually raises the bar and implies that divorce is only optional in only one situation. Otherwise, it's a husband and wife for life. Jesus gives, as a result, hope for every broken marriage. No situation. Uh, the Jews at that time said that you had to divorce if there was something that happened in your marriage, uh, like a sexual immorality of some sort. You had to. Jesus is saying, no, this is, this is optional. There is hope in every situation. There is opportunity for forgiveness and reconciliation in every broken marriage. But Jesus does give one exception in one situation. He says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Or to put it in another way, a husband and wife are married for life, but in, if one commits sexual immorality, then divorce and remarriage are permitted. It would not be a sin for the other spouse to initiate the divorce and stay single or be free to be remarried. The phrase that is so important here is understanding the exception clause, except for sexual immorality. What is sexual immorality? Well, this is a word, it's just one word in the Greek, it's porneia. We get various words in English from this word porneia. But it is a broad word that it, it's meant to encapsulate lots of different uh, ideas um, but very specifically, all those ideas are centered on any sexual sin, any act of sex that is outside of God's design for sexual intimacy in marriage. So this could be fornication, adultery, bestiality, incest, rape, like any other sinful deviation from the design. This is sexual sin. And if one of the spouses commits an act of pornea, commits an act of sexual immorality, then there are now God-given grounds for divorce. Again, just permission, not a commandment. It's not a requirement. Forgiveness and reconciliation are always to be the goal in every situation. But when reconciliation efforts have been exhausted, then there are grounds for divorce and remarriage in that specific situation. Why does Jesus make an exception here for cases of porneia, of sexual morality? Well, most understand it is because it violates the one flesh union in a marriage, both covenantally and physically. Covenantally, 
A husband and wife covenanted, they promised, they vowed to one another to be faithful sexually towards one another their whole marriage. And now, because of one of the spouses committing sexual immorality, that promise has been broken on their side. They did not keep their end of the covenant. And then physically, what happens is that it violates the one flesh union physically, not by severing it between the husband and wife, but by adding to it. They've now gone out and committed sexual immorality and have brought someone now into and added to what was supposed to be a monogamous one flesh union. They've added now a third or more party to that union. And so as a result, Jesus says that that has, that has broken the covenant of marriage. And so Jesus, he wants to highlight and emphasize the permanence of marriage, and yet at the same time, he is aware of the degree of sin that can occur in a marriage and the brokenness that can, that can happen. And he gives one exception here for divorce and remarriage. Of course, this also explains and gives a little bit more light on verse 11 as to why Paul said that if a believer has already gotten divorced for reasons that do not involve pornea, that do not involve sexual immorality, that would not fit in this exception clause, then they are to remain single or to be reconciled with their former spouse. They are not to remarry another person because the one flesh union was not broken. Again, you may be hearing this and thinking, well, what if we got divorced, but now that spouse has remarried. Even though they shouldn't have, they have. Where does that leave me? And the Bible is, is silent on that issue. And yet, as we pull together different biblical principles, I think it's right if that, if that person who has left, who has sought the Lord, sought in ways in which they've exhausted every form of reconciliation, and if that former spouse has already been married, there's no possibility of them now being uh, reconciled and remarried to them, then I believe that they are free to remarry, but only in the Lord. Well, what if I got divorced for reasons that aren't permitted in the Bible, and then I got remarried? What should I do now? Should I stay with that same person in my second marriage, or should I divorce them? And, you know, try to fix it all. No. No, Paul says, stay married. Your divorce this time won't fix your divorce previously. Two wrongs do not make a right. Instead, Scripture calls you to stay married. I think it's very instructive what Jesus, uh, what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4, verse 18. She had five different husbands. Each one was called her husband. It was a legitimate marriage. Whether she entered that marriage legitimately or not doesn't, it's not explained, but each one was legitimate. I think that's very important to understand that even if I wrongly divorced and sinfully entered into another marriage, I got remarried, even though that was wrong going in, I am now legitimately married in God's eyes, and I am called to live out those covenant vows and promises to my current spouse. To bear fruit in keeping with repentance means to be a good, godly spouse in that current marriage. Stay married and confess your sins to God. 
confess to the Lord, it was wrong for me to divorce or it was wrong for me to enter into this new marriage. But thank you, God, for your forgiveness and know God's forgiveness and cleansing and that he sees you as married and know that you are blessed in this now new marriage having confessed your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And now you're able to honor the Lord right now where you are. I would encourage anyone who's, who's gone through divorce or who has gone into remarriage to consider biblical counseling simply because biblical counseling is just focused discipleship. You're just able to come alongside another brother and sister in Christ to help you think through stuff that's happened in your story and to untie some knots. Sometimes we bring stuff into our current situation that occurred a long time ago and God wants to untie those for you so that you can experience and delight in the gospel in a deeper and deeper way. You may be wondering, well, my situation is, is even different than that. Uh, I'm married to an unbeliever. What should I do? This is a question that actually was being asked in Corinth. There were people who got married, just like today, and then one of the spouses hears the gospel and is saved. Praise God. And now they're wondering, uh, I have an unbelieving spouse. What do I do? do, I, do I, does, would God want me to stay in this marriage, am I getting defiled spiritually or physically by being married to an unbeliever? What do I do? And this is what Paul answers in verse 12. He says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. So he's not quoting Jesus anymore. Jesus didn't address this specific question. But what Paul is now doing as an apostle of Christ, full of the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Spirit, speaking authoritatively, this is Scripture. And he's now saying, as God would say, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Paul says here, that in situations where a believer is married to an unbeliever, they should stay married. Stay married. As long as the unbeliever wants to stay married and isn't so offended by your faith in Christ. But what happens, though, if the believer doesn't want to stay? And... Well, let me just mention here first, why? Why would Paul say that you should stay together? You should stay married with an unbeliever. He gives actually two reasons, and that's in verse 14 and 16. You'll see the word at the beginning of verse 14. It should say for. He's giving a reason. It means because. This is why you should stay there. Because if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Sorry, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, her children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Paul mentions, you probably noticed, the word holy three times in one verse. He's really trying to get across an idea. He is not saying 
that your spouse, your unbelieving spouse, your unbelieving kids automatically get saved if you're a Christian. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that he's using the word holy uh, sort of in an Old Testament ceremonial clean way. That there is, there is a way in which this unbelieving spouse is not unclean to you. If you touched them, you wouldn't be un, become unclean. In fact, in the New Covenant, you see this theme in which, starting with Jesus, when he touched that which was unclean, it became clean. And so you get this idea that within a covenant marriage, the believer, instead of being defiled by the unbeliever, is actually having a sanctifying effect, a good effect on their unbelieving spouse and unbelieving kids. That they are able, as they live out the gospel, as they speak the gospel, it has a restraining effect on evil as to what could happen. And it has a good godly effect in that you're setting an example and modeling Christ to them. This is what it looks like to be loving and patient and kind and how to ask for forgiveness when you sin. And so this is what it's like. There's this salty effect in there. You know, like when you add salt to food, it both preserves it and make it, makes it taste better. Well, this is the effect that a, a believing spouse has in their family. There's this preserving effect, the restraining of evil, and a good effect. It makes it taste better. It makes the, the marriage and the family have aspects that are being displayed more clearly of the gospel because of the presence of the believing spouse. So believer, stay married to your unbelieving spouse because God is using you to have a sanctifying effect in your marriage and family. Paul further says, actually in verse 16, he says, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? One of the applications of this is the fact that because you are married to an unbeliever, they are regularly hearing the gospel and regularly seeing it displayed in front of them. That is good opportunities for evangelism. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands so that even if some don't obey the word, that is, they, they don't believe the gospel yet, they may be one without a word. They may trust in Christ because they've, they've heard you say it. Yeah. You know what it's like with family, right? You need to say the gospel, but then after a while, they don't want to hear it anymore. They just want to see it. They want to see it lived out. And this is what Peter is saying, is that once you've laid out the word, then you begin to live the word. And they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. God is using you as salt and light in your marriage. And I just want to say this side thing. Don't put pressure on yourself as a believing spouse married to an unbeliever, that you gotta be perfect. Or if you're a parent, you're a believing parent, you got unbelieving kids, don't put this pressure on yourself that, oh, I just gotta be perfect. I can't make any mistakes. Otherwise, they may not get saved. You're gonna make mistakes. You are going to sin. And a part of your witness, a part of displaying the gospel is by admitting it, by confessing your sins and asking for forgiveness. That is a massive testimony to the gospel. What you're doing is you're modeling what they need to do. They need to turn to Jesus the way you are. They need to confess their sins the way you are. They need to repent the way you are. That is evangelistic. So don't put all this false pressure that you gotta be like some perfect person. Otherwise, your unbelieving spouse or kids won't get saved. No, just 
Walk with Jesus. Walk with Jesus, growing in your faith and your love and trust in him, growing in the word. And when you sin, confess and repent. That's the mark of a Christian. Not perfection, but repentance. Okay. You may have noticed in verse 15, we jumped over that. This is because Paul here wants to address the situation where the unbelieving spouse doesn't want to stay. They don't want to stay. They don't like your Jesus. They don't like your new faith. And they threaten to walk out on you unless you walk out on Christ. And now you're in a spot, what do I do? What do I do? And this is the last thing that we're gonna look at here today is that we are able and must honor the Lord by staying faithful to Christ above all. Being faithful to Christ above all. In verse 15 it says, but if the unbelieving partner separates Let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. There are sadly times where the unbelieving spouse says, that's it, I'm out, I'm done, I'm out of here. What does the believer do in that kind of a situation? The word literally mean here, when he he separates or she separates, when he says, let it be so, that literally means let the one separate. That is, they are physically leaving the marriage and causing divorce, as we looked at earlier. This situation is often referred to as abandonment, where the believing spouse is being abandoned by the unbelieving spouse as he initiates or she initiates divorce in their abandonment. And in this situation, Paul says, let the unbelieving partner go. God has called you to peace At that point, there's not a lot that the believing spouse can do. Yes, you are to pursue reconciliation. You pursue efforts to make it work, absolutely. But once those have been exhausted, what else is there left to do? Paul actually says in Romans 12, 18, that we are, if possible, so far as it depends on you. And there's things that are outside of our control. But insofar as it depends on me, I have made every effort to live peaceably with all, including our spouses. But if an unbeliever decides to leave, then the believer is left in a spot where they are, as Paul said, to be at peace and to not be enslaved in such situations. That's a strong word. Paul uses this strong word that they're not enslaved in these situations, and it's speaking to the force and strength of that marital commitment. And it's designed that way. That's a good thing. In marriage, it's a beautiful thing to have the joy and the comfort and protection of a strong marital bond. But when one of the spouses leaves, when the unbeliever leaves, that strong bond can feel like handcuffs because now you you don't know what to do. They've just opted out and you're left standing with the bag. In a similar word, Paul uses in verse 27, He uses the word bound. Different words, same family of words, giving the same idea. In verse 27 and verse 39 of the same chapter, he says in verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Are you tied in a marital covenant with a wife? Then do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? That is, are you single? Do not seek a wife. Remember, this is that theme that Paul keeps 
talking about wherever you are, stay where you are. Honor the Lord where you are, unless he's leading you elsewhere. But don't assume that. Just you are able to glorify God right where you are. In verse 39, he's addressing uh, situations of, of widowhood. He says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, tied in a marital covenant with him. But if her husband dies, she is now free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord, only a Christian. So when the spouse dies, their marriage covenant is fulfilled. It's completed. They did it. They, they, they kept their promises. It's now completed. And now that that person's body has been laid to rest, that one flesh union now is, is broken or completed. It's in a good way. And now that person now, the widow, is now free. Free to be single. Free to remarry in the Lord. But this, these words, bound and free, tied and free, that are used here, help us understand what Paul's saying in verse 15. That a believer is not bound, the, a believer who's been abandoned is not bound to keep living out the covenant when the unbelieving spouse has already broken it by leaving and separating and divorcing. And so we find here a second exception to the permanence of marriage. Jesus already talked about one where if one of the spouses commits sexual immorality, there is permission once reconciliation efforts have been exhausted and reconciliation is not possible, there is permission for divorce and remarriage. And here Paul says in a second situation where if an unbelieving spouse in a marriage leaves and divorces, the believing spouse that had been abandoned is no longer bound to stay and fulfill that covenant marriage uh, commitment, those vows. They are now free to let the unbeliever go and be free to be single or free to remarry in the Lord. God has called us to peace. And I think as we have covered a lot of ground here, it's so important to understand what marriage was designed to point to. See, Jesus has, is able to call us to peace right where we are. No matter what situation we're in, we are called to peace because he has already given us his peace as the prince of peace through this gospel of peace. That wherever you're at right now, you know that you can turn to Christ and confess your sins and be cleansed and forgiven knowing that you're a new creation in Christ and knowing that what, no matter what your marital status is right now on earth, it's only temporary. It actually has an expiration date and it's designed that way because Jesus has come. For all those who have trusted in Christ, Jesus has come as the new groom to betroth or engage himself to you through salvation and that he now promises to you, he makes marriage promises to you that he will never leave you nor forsake you, that he will be with you always to the end of the age. And then when he comes at the end of the age, he will bring you to himself and to the house he is preparing for us. And he will marry us at the marriage supper of the Lamb and we will be in infinite communion with him forever. All of our singleness, all of our marriages, everything is pointing to that one marriage. All of these will end. That's why Paul is saying, don't put all your eggs in this basket. Yes, be faithful. Be faithful in where you are, where God has called you. 
But don't hold on to this more tightly than you hold on to Christ. Hold fast to Christ, for he comes to you, and that marriage will never end. That marriage will go on and on forever in perfect faithfulness. And even now, we can enjoy the peace that flows from that in whatever situation you're in as one who trusts in the groom, in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this idea of marriage, this powerful picture, and yet we know it's not ultimate. We know that as good as marriage is, sin can affect it, sin can break it, but God, your gospel is greater. It can heal, it can restore, you can forgive, you can make us new. I pray, Jesus, that by your spirit, you would fill us. Let us be quick to come to you. Let us not try to convince ourselves that what I did was not that bad, or where I am isn't that bad, but let us just come to you, knowing that you abundantly pardon. And I pray, Jesus, that our eyes would be fixed on you, our groom, our husband, our Savior who is coming for us. We bless you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.